I'm Zoe Weinberg, and this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we have a new co-host joining us, Natalia Tucker. Natalia is a future of finance, technology, and policy enthusiast. She is the co-founder of a payments infrastructure company that's focused on delivering regulated digital money to large financial institutions and governments. She's also a member of the Bretton Woods Committee and an advisor to the Stanford Future of Digital Currency Initiative, a partnership with the United Nations. She's also worked at organizations like BlackRock, the Hoover Institution, and Google X. Natalia, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> First time. <laughs> yes, we're, I'm, I'm so excited to be co-hosting with you. Um, we also have a guest on the show this week. Samira has worked at the intersection of tech and society for many years. Uh, she was previously at Facebook where she worked on issues like suicide prevention and eating disorder support. And then she joined the news org leading, uh, leading up to the 2016 election where she eventually ended up leading the news product team. She's also done work on metaverse issues and, and digital identity. Um, and she previously studied city planning and public policy at UC Berkeley. Samira, thanks for joining us. So excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So Samira, you've been working on the intersection of tech and social change for many years. What originally inspired your interest in this space? I definitely came to it from a little bit of a roundabout approach. Um, my interest in city planning was actually the ways in which policies at the city level shaped people's sort of individual lived experience. And I really thought that I was going to take more of a kind of department of state, um, maybe like you know, or de urban development route. And around the time that I was at UC Berkeley, it was really the time when you started to see companies like Facebook or Google participating more and more on a policy stage. And so I was just, it was just sort of the water you swam in when you were at Berkeley or Stanford, you know, kind of when you're in the Bay Area, tech is everywhere. And so you're able to see so viscerally and so presently how these big companies were actually shaping things that were traditionally policy endeavors. And so Google was getting super involved in city planning. That's actually one of the first places I saw it was that Google was starting to really influence how the Bay was being built. Um, and that was where the seed really got planted of like, oh, this might be a different approach to policy. Like this isn't the entry point I thought I would have, but these companies are really shaping policy. And from there, uh, I got a job at Box, which was doing cloud computing, really learned a lot of things there about the sort of spirit with which tech is built, um, but knew pretty quickly that I wanted to return to some more, I guess, like policy centric problems. And at that time, Facebook was, it was before, it was before some of the really hard stuff hit, but Facebook was already sort of involved in and thinking about pretty interesting policy initiatives. And so I thought to myself, can I go work on these from the side of of technologists and like learn what, how they're thinking about things rather than the more planning and policy angle that I'd studied. When you say you learned about the spirit in which tech is built. Yeah. What, like, what do you mean by that? Yeah. I think in general, sometimes and I think this has changed in the, in the decade or so since, since I entered Silicon Valley, but I think there was an ethos of progress for the sake of progress. Technology itself can solve problems. Like, there are, there are these inefficiencies or these things that are wrong with society, environment, 
government, whatever it is, and we can we can fix them with technology, which I think is a complicated perspective. But the energy of let's go do something. There was this ethos of like do and progress and make things happen. And that was very exciting, even if we learned a lot during that decade about the ways in which that spirit can can have externalities. I think the the ethos of like, let's just get our hands dirty and figure out, like take a problem and try to solve it. Um, there is an orientation, I think, among technologists that progress is both inevitable and good. Um, and I think that that's different than policy, <laughs> where I don't know that change and progress are always seen as good, that everyone's aligned, that that is, that is the right direction. Right. And I guess, you know, a, a component of policy is often sometimes reactive too. It's like, okay, we've like seen these, you know, challenges or harms in the world and now we're trying to correct for them. Um, and, uh, and that's just a very different orientation to problem solving. Um, so, you know, you worked on news at Facebook, um, which is uh, fascinating. Um, and I think everybody, um, you know, has has followed uh, the ways in which, like, leading up to the 2016 election and different global events, you know, around the world, uh, the ways in which it's been sort of, you know, influenced and mediated by social media. I'm curious what you feel is the most misunderstood piece of the equation by the public. And when you're on the inside, you know, you have a perspective on XYZ that 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 isn't widely understood or portrayed, you know, to, to the public. Yeah, I think there are definitely a few. So um, the years that I worked on news was from sort of early 2016. Is that right? Kind of, oh, no, no, it was right. It was right around the election. So it was like the end of 2016 through 20 like after the 2020 election. So it was really like a, a, a specific window. And I think some of the things that I learned most um, or sort of saw, felt that were the most misunderstood were one, I think sometimes people think that the raw tech, like the technology and the technical capability of these companies is actually better than it is. Like, I'm not saying they're not great, but sometimes the capacity for an algorithm to differentiate that like a recipe for a baked chicken is not what some people might consider news is very hard to teach a computer to do, right? They both have bylines. They're about the same length. You know, like there's, there's a lot of reasons they're published by, you know, say the New York times. So there is this actual capability gap where I think oftentimes regulators and the public will be like, well, why didn't you just X? And the answer is often because we can't like there that's, and especially at scale in every language in the world, there was some degree of, just overestimation of what the technology can do is one misunderstanding. And I think the other, I think especially in 2016, the other misunderstanding was how intentional some of the things had been. Was I think there were decisions made leading into 2016 by, by product teams who had product outcomes they were responsible for that had nothing to do with news or elections or whatever it might be. And I think a misunderstanding you saw a lot was that there were like a group of people sitting in a room who knew what would happen if they made those decisions and made them anyway. I think a lot of times really well-intentioned people made the best decisions they could with the information in front of them and just honestly had no idea how those products could be abused or could be, you know, misunderstood or whatever. So I think both the intent and the capacity were things that I felt like at times people have misunderstood. Uh, that doesn't mean 
they shouldn't be held accountable and they shouldn't improve. But I think there there's like a fundamental misunderstanding sometimes. That makes a lot of sense to me. On net, do you feel like social media has ultimately been good or bad for the democratization of information? I know that's a really unfair question because they're like, it is nuanced, but I'm curious if you have a position there and maybe your position is like, that is an impossible question to answer and that's fine. But no, I, you know what? I think it's actually a good question. Uh, It's a hard question, but uh, I think I would have to come down on the side of it being good, even though there are certainly a lot of complex and bad things about the, the kind of, unfettered access to information and and misinformation, all the other things that come with it. But at the end of the day, I think you look at the kinds of organizing and connection that are possible online that weren't before. I think there is a real fundamental shift in how humans relate to one another. That's going to have, it's going to take us some time to figure out. But if you look at around the world, the places where people are able to speak truth to power and where they're able to sort of organize and find like-minded people. Um, I think on balance, that seems like an extremely powerful phase of human evolution that we're in. And obviously some of this, some of my relationship to this, like any, anyone's answer is going to come from their personal experience. And uh, I'm the child of immigrants. We have family in Iran and I have relationships with family members in Iran that are only possible because of social platforms and because of the internet and the way we're able to communicate. And I think for so many people, that's true. And we are able to to connect and maintain those connections in a way that we never have been able to in society before. And I also and I think that has these downstream effects of making us more passionate and connected about issues that are not just happening immediately around us in our physical communities. And so I think we have some ways to go as a society before we figure out exactly what it means and how we want it to operate in a best case scenario. But the raw potential of the internet to be a force for good is, I think, quite high still. I still believe in it. Yeah, and I'm just curious, you know, you talked a little bit about uh, where your family is from, and I know that you've been exploring some new research questions about the use of technology in Iran. And so... Can you actually tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really interested in the different ways uh, that that different societies and different governments are handling uh, the regulation and sort of social norms around social platforms. Uh, when you look at kind of globally over the last few decades, digital social media has, has obviously become a significant force in public and civic life. And it has shown the capacity to both sort of drive progressive social movements. Uh, we saw that in like Arab Spring, Occupy Wall Street, some of the stuff you see in climate activism. Um, but you also see like pretty incredible capacity for radicalization and kind of anti-democratic ideals. And as a result of that, you actually see governments on both sides of the spectrum beginning to regulate social platforms. And you see that sort of in democratic societies, you see it in other uh, more authoritarian societies. And so I'm pretty interested in the the global regulatory landscape around social platforms and the ways in which different movements are sort of evading or circumnavigating policies that are being made. Um, And specifically kind of thinking about the ways in which 
you know, the generation that's coming into their, their 20s, their adulthood now, grew up on the internet. And they really sort of exist as part of this really global generation that has expectations about, you know, how they want to live, how they expect to dress, the rights they expect to have. And I think that that's yielding a new, a new wave of social movements. Um, you see that in China, we've seen that in the last year in Iran, where sort of these um, uprisings led by young women have been unfolding. And I think in general, I'm, I'm very curious to see if there are trends to be understood about how technology is being used and how the internet is being used to organize and make the will of the people known and whether or not we should be forming any international and global consensus about access to information and access to the internet as a result uh, and whether the international community can can come to some sort of alignment about what um, what we think the access to internet is like should be and what the baseline rights are that we may want to protect there. I think just jumping off of what you shared. So in conflict situations, we often see technology being used as a tool of oppression, right? For manipulation, internet shutdown, surveillance. I'm sure you've had a lot of exposure to that with your work with internet.org, but also a tool of liberation, right? Recording ground truth, etc. And so, you know, specifically to this example, how do you think about the dynamic between the two? And also, is technology gendered, right? Or is it even, is technology, how does that play into kind of these ethnic minorities? Um, into how kind of they're making their voices heard or maybe how their voices are being shut down? Absolutely. I think a few different questions in there. So I'll try and kind of take them um, one at a time. I think and I am far, far from an expert. I think that's that's why I would like to research this in more depth. I think there's such richness to understanding this better. But what I would say kind of first and foremost is that you do see how afraid of technology these governments are when in the the immediate thing they do is they shut off the internet. They they restrict, they jam signal, they restrict internet access, right? So there is, I think there's sort of an implied power to that. The governments are acknowledging by doing that this is a powerful tool. It's dangerous to them, right? So I think there is, there's that. The flip side of surveillance is huge, right? I think we live in a state where that's no longer novel. We're sort of, we accept that like, oh, yep, someone's, if my face is on a, you know, a screen, if I'm in a public place that has a CCTV, like I can be surveilled. And we sort of, I think we've, I think we're kind of well into that state. And when you go places like Iran, there are many others, I'm not going <laughs> to name names. Um, but there are a lot of places where that the threat of that is even more palpable and is much more violent and much more dangerous. Um, so I think it's, I think it's very much a tool for both sides. But I do think the fear with which it's met implies that at least for now, it's still a tool like the power balance, I, I feel shifts slightly towards a tool for the people. Because it's I think there is some clearly they're afraid of it. There's some power to that. You know, I think the thing that's interesting that we're seeing right now is more and more governments also pursuing these sort of closed national internets. Uh, this is kind of in the same vein as what you see in China with the Great Firewall. Um, and there are a number of other countries, including, I think, Russia, Iran, among others, who are pursuing similar closed internets and who have spoken to one another. Um, there are sort of rumors that Iran and China have spoken about implementing something similar in Iran. And I think this opens really interesting questions about what the future of the internet is. Um, 
And so as you look at social movements globally that are enabled in a way they never have been before by social platforms at the same time that there's more and more regulation of social platforms and more talk of limiting um, a global internet, I think we have very interesting questions to ask ourselves as a, as a global society about what we're comfortable with and what we think the right the right future for the internet is. Can we create some sort of consensus, whether that's at the international level, like are there international sort of covenants? Like can we see access to internet and social networks as a right, the way we think about things like human rights or freshwater rights or things like that, that are understood to be so fundamental to like the experience of being a human that we're willing to protect it or at least create international consensus on what the bar is, right? Because we living in we're living in a time where regulation of these platforms is increasing exponentially. And a lot of that regulation, most reasonable people would agree is probably a good thing, right? Like we, there's like some balance here where if you're in a country like the US, if you're in Germany, some amount of limiting the power of these tech giants feels reasonable, right? You're like, yeah, of course we should regulate it. But that question gets more and more complicated the further from democratic rule you get and the further you are from the government in power representing the will of the people. And so I think we might, like there are some serious trade-offs on regulating these types of platforms. And I think you lose something when you start limiting their power. That's probably okay, but how far how far are we willing to go? And what are we willing to accept as a trade-off? I think is a, a big question we have to answer as a society. I think that's, I mean, that's totally fascinating. I think, um, you know, in a domestic context, uh, the trade-off often feels like it's between sort of like, you know, regulation and safety versus kind of free speech and, you know, like, I don't know, like total openness. Um, and the trade-off is very different when you're looking at a society in which the alternative is like extreme censorship, you know, uh, a limited number of, say, news and media organizations, um, and, uh, and, and ways in which, like, if you give a government entity the ability to, to regulate, the outcomes may look very, very different. Um, I thought it was really interesting that you said that Iran is actually thinking about or, or looking at trying to create its own kind of like, internet bubble or, 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 you know, sort of uh, equivalent of the great firewall of China. Um, can you tell us more about that and, um, and, and like what that would mean um, if, if we really do end up in a world in which there's a lot of like fragmented, different parallel internets out there? Honestly, I can't because I don't think we under, I don't think we understand it, or at least I certainly don't. I think this is a, it's something that like, is talked about. It's something I've read about, but I think at the moment, the implications are very, very high level. Like China and Iran have talked about this, like the governments of China, they, they have a pretty quite a close relationship. Um, and so I think you do open a bunch of questions of, are they just, do we have a, do we have a series of closed internets that, you know, certain people get special permissions to to traverse, right? Like, do you get like a special internet passport and you get to go to, you get to go to China's internet if you're one of the, like Iran's diplomats, et cetera. I don't know how that works, right? Like, I think it's totally uncharted. Or are there a series of closed internets that speak to one another because they've agreed on a different set of rules for the internet that they, and I don't, I don't think we know. I think somebody who both, I think I lack both technical understanding of how this would work. And I don't think we've seen it done. 
Um, I think this is a huge question. I think my understanding is that other countries have also discussed this. I think Russia has thought about similar tactics. Like I think there are a number of governments who have had talks or at least explorations of a no, more, that, close, more controlled. That energy. is definitely true. I mean, during, I, I don't know if this is true today, but for a long time, the only content on say TikTok in Russia was from other Russian IP addresses. Right. So sure. you couldn't, you could not see content from, from, you know, other creators out there, yeah. um, which does create not just an echo chamber, but like an actual yep. sort of like bubble that is cut off yep. from the world. Well, I think it lets you apply different rules to the internet if you control it at the national level. But sorry, go ahead. Do you think with how quickly things are evolving with the technology industry and with all the different types of platforms, as well as the advent of AI, you know, deep fakes, et cetera, you know, today it might be much more straightforward to control the platforms and pick and choose, um, But how do you really see that evolving in the future? Like, are these governments just setting themselves up for failure because there is always going to end up being a loophole? Or do you think, you know, once they've sort of started the bubble, it's actually pretty easy to upkeep? Really hard question. And one that I am, I'm, I can give my opinion. I will caveat that I think this is a fairly technical question. And I think someone with a, so my, my instinct on it though is that there is probably like, like anything else, like sort of a multi-pronged approach that I, if I were these governments and if my objective was to control populations and make sure that I was ahead of the curve on innovation, I think there is like baseline and infrastructural question of like, if you control the power grid, you control the internet, you control cell connection and like maybe, maybe you even control satellite connection. Like I don't, there's, if you control infrastructure far enough that like that becomes a huge, like, I think that is a huge initial sort of constraint on anybody's ability to stay ahead of you. Right. And I think the human spirit is pretty, pretty great. And I'm sure like people out there will be pushing the bounds of that and finding loopholes. And I hope they do. Right. That seems important to the continuation of human innovation. Like I hope there are always people who are pushing the bounds of, of what is possible and pushing back on authoritarianism. But I I think if you start from an infrastructure level, you've limited a huge percentage of what is possible because for someone to evade you or someone to get ahead of you, they're going to have to be so exceptional in their capacity to like get access to to, like figure some way around just like hard physical constraints. If that changes and that becomes something that is harder to control, that might be a different story. But I do think to some degree with it, with each incremental degree that you are more controlled, the slower the um, response to you will be and the less people will be able to like the, you're, you hamper the ability to fight back pretty, pretty effectively. I think there's like a step change downward. That's my, that's my instinct. <laughs> I want to go back briefly to a question that Natalia, you know, raised, which is about the extent to which like technology is gendered. And the reason that I, um, find that interesting is that I saw a stat a while ago and I, I don't know how exact and precise this is, but that like the vast majority of creators on TikTok and Instagram and other platforms are women, um, which, you know, sort of makes sense. I think when you think about influencer culture, it often tends to be um, fairly gendered. Um, and what's so, you know, and what's interesting about the recent 
you know, protests in Iran is that the whole movement was, was really sort of driven by women and often very young women. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm curious to better understand, like, is there some sort of interesting nexus here between like, social media being a tool that actually is sort of dominated by women globally. And yet it's all, and it's also kind of leading to these political movements, you know, arguably it also might be like, you know, leading to lots of other challenges domestically. I know you worked on things like eating disorder um, related issues while you were at Facebook. So, you know, that there's a lot of questions in there, but I'm just curious what you think. Yes. I think it's a good question. I don't know if I would go as far as say that technology is inherently gendered. I think it, I think technology is neutral. Its application is, I think, certainly gendered. Um, I do think there is something to people who feel unsafe in the physical world, I think are more incentivized to be online, right? I think there is something to, I'm physically unsafe moving through the world. Like a lot of the ways that, you know, if I were a like an able-bodied man moving through space and looking at economic opportunities and exploring creativity, that feels safer for many people. And this is not always true, but there is some degree of, I think there is some theory that when your physical body is more endangered, the internet looks like a more promising place to roam. So I think that that can be part of why you see so much, so much female-led creativity on the internet. I also think and I, I think this is kind of sociologically true. Young women specifically tend to be predictors of change in general. Like, I think that that's like certainly well documented in linguistics, like linguistic changes that enter the broad use, the broad like lexicon usually start with young women. Like there are a lot of, and, and some theory of this is that young women are especially for whatever reason, nature or nurture, more likely to try new stuff. Like they're just sort of more open, more like available to change. Um, but yeah, so I think there's, there's some degree to which like that's, that's broadly indicative of the role that I think young women can play in society and pushing it towards change. And then I think there's the piece of like, you just have the least to lose. There's some confluence of these things, but I definitely do think the internet is a gendered place. Um, I think you, my, in my experience, society's problems are just duplicated and magnified online. I don't think they're different. I think in, some, in a lot of cases, I actually don't think they're different problems. I think they're mostly the same problems with just like enormous reach and less of the, so for example, things like bullying or kind of like the eating disorder stuff. It's the same problem in the real world, but without some of the built-in physiological mechanisms that help protect you, like when you see a person, you know, all, all the research of like, when you see a person's face and you're looking at them, it's a lot harder to be mean to them. But when you're not looking at them, it's really, it's much easier to be cruel to them. And so we have all these, we have all these built-in mechanisms to help protect some of these things and you lose them online. But there are a lot of the same problems. Yeah. I'm really fascinated by the thing or what you had mentioned around if you're not safe in the physical world, you know, the virtual world is more attractive. And I know you did a brief amount of work before you left Facebook on the metaverse identity specifically. And so as you really think about, you know, the metaverse as an option for maybe several different types of virtual worlds and how that's connected to identity and maybe new identities that people make up for themselves, maybe they're similar, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about some of your maybe biggest insights 
from looking at the intersection of those two? It's a good question. I feel like the, the identity work in particular was interesting because maybe maybe like identity work in the physical world, maybe this is just a direct parallel. There are so few universal truths. Like the, you could speak to a person who's like, the most important thing you could do for me is make a 3D virtual me. Like I want, I want like a holographic avatar of me that I can move through like virtual spaces. And that's like, that's deeply important to me. And any difference from it being me makes me feel distant from it. And that makes me stressed out. And like, I will not use this because it doesn't look like me. And you'll have somebody passionately have that feeling. And then you'll have someone who's like, this rules. I want to walk around the metaverse as a banana with googly eyes. I've always wanted to do that. This is so fun. This is creative. I want to like make little avatars and gift gift them to my friends. And this is like a creative and joyful act. And I never want to look like myself in the metaverse. Like I want to be flying. I want to have horse hooves. I want to do everything I can't do in the real world. And that's the point. And that's fun. And I never want to look like myself. Looking like myself is not something I'm interested in. I wouldn't do it in real life if I didn't have to. My preference is like to be fictional. And I think that that was one of the hardest things about building for the metaverse, like for the year I was there, is just that you you have to build for sort of infinite flexibility because, or you don't have to. The people want you to build for infinite flexibility, um, and you probably shouldn't. But like there, there is a demand. It's there's very little consensus on what is most valuable to people, and I think, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's a it's a really it's also a, it's a part of why I hesitate so much is it's one of the areas of product I have the least personal like affinity towards. Like I think building for something that you yourself are sort of like, I don't get it is hard. It's one like, it's, and I think this was maybe one of the areas of product in my life where I've been the most like, yeah, I'm not, the empathy piece isn't curling over. Like I'm not getting, I don't, I'm not feeling what you guys are feeling and it's making it hard to figure out how to build for you. So I may not have the strongest answer here. Switching gears a little bit, Samira, I know that you've been working on a novel about Iran. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the novel uh, seeks to follow an Iranian family from sort of the 1950s through today, and it actually culminates the week of Masa Amini's death this last summer. And so it follows this family sort of through two branches of the family, one branch that stays in Iran, one branch that comes to the U.S., and so for sort of three generations of women. And the, the two major themes that I wanted to explore in writing it was one, the idea of genetic memory and sort of what is, what do we inherit sort of in our bodies and in our psychology and versus what is ours? And how do you really, how do you really think about the difference between those? And the second theme is really about the concept of progress and where we, I think often, at least I, I grew up in California, growing up in, in the West, I think we often associate progress with the further West you go and the further forward in time. So the more modern, the more Western you get, you're more progressive, right? And I think Iran is a great example of like my grandmother in the 1950s in Iran had more bodily autonomy than most American women do today, right? Like on baseline things like, like um, access to contraception, like uh, and social norms that allowed her to act on that. And I think I don't want to paint Iran in the mid-century as like a utopia. It had a lot of problems. I'm not saying that, but I do think progress is a very complicated concept there. And I'm very interested in 
the complicating complicating our thoughts on what progress is and where it happens and for whom it happens and who defines it. And so that was one of the main things I wanted to think about was sort of as these women moved west and forward in time, what actually happened to their relationship to things like being a woman, to their body, to autonomy. And how do we, yeah, how do we make sense of that in the, the normal paradigms that we have for those things? That sounds amazing. I can't wait to read it. Um, I want to dig in a little bit to this decision to, to, to write fiction, right? They, I mean, there's so many, you know, ways to tell stories. It could have been, you know, an op-ed or, you know, if you're in Silicon Valley, maybe you start a Substack or, you know, whatever. Um, and yet there's something pretty interesting about the choice to, to, you know, use fiction and to use storytelling as a way to convey some of these, you know, some of these individual stories, but also kind of like larger historical narratives. Um, how, like, how did you, what, yeah, what inspired you to write it? And and also what role do you think fiction plays in cross-cultural exchange and communication? Yes. So um, for me, I think part one is just that I love fiction myself and I find it a very effective way to connect to different concepts and different people. So this last year I read both The Island of Sea Women, which is about the Korean Henyo, and I read Pachinko. And those two are both about Korea in the mid-20th century, and they sort of have this big multi-generational lens. And I found it such an effective way to learn about Korean history. You know, my best childhood friend is Korean, but I still had never thought in depth about, you know, about Korea. But the humanization of the Korean people in these stories made me engage with something that I probably heard in a history lesson at some point. Like some part of me was like, oh yeah, the Japanese occupied Korea. Like I know that academically, but seeing its impact on a human scale and feeling invested in their story and having it be something that is sort of um, poetic. And I think I also think beauty plays a role. Like when something is beautiful and it makes you feel, I think you retain and react to that more. So with this issue, Something I heard a lot of my sort of American friends saying in the wake of the protests last summer was like, whoa, I had no idea Iranian women were so, you know, like, where do they get this fire from? Where is this? Like, I, I you know, I, I think of them as these, you know, the, I always see them in these headscarves. They're, they're just Middle Eastern women in a Muslim country. Like, I just, I didn't, I had no idea like what happened here to give them this fire or whatever it is. Right. And I heard this desire when people kind of like, I want to understand these women. Who are they? How'd they get here? What motivates them? And I think that's what fiction does for you is I think it takes sort of like facts and stories and like things that are happening and it connects you to the why and what motivates these people. And I think we care more about stories when, when we, when we care about the characters in them and when we can connect emotionally and relate to them. So I think that is the power of, of fiction as a medium. And I also just really love, I like, I think fiction is fun. I think it's, can be very poetic. It can make you feel things. And I think it's a great medium. So hopefully I don't, hopefully the novel when it's finished does that and can help people connect to, you know, these women in Iran are pretty incredible. And I think they're, they're just so, yeah, they're incredible. And I think the more people can understand them and connect with them and see how brave and how powerful they are, maybe the more, power that'll be behind their movement, the more support for it, the more general kind of, yeah, that's, that's, I think the hope. And, you know, what a journey to put all of these kind of stories into writing. And I know I'm super excited to read the book whenever it comes out. I think it's 
so cool that you're actually getting to do that and you have like a personal connection in some way to that story as well. So now we're going to shift to our final segment in which we each share something that we're following these days. I will go first. Uh, I've been following this interesting story that hasn't gotten a ton of coverage, um, but it's about the use of synthetic media and deep fakes. Uh, Amnesty International, which is a big human rights organization, recently published some photos uh, that um, allegedly were showing some of the brutality um, that uh, is uh, occurring in Colombia right now. There um, are some natu- national protests from the last several years that have um, uh, that they've been covering and reporting on, and the images that they used were generated by AI. Um, they did you know, sort of explicitly say that. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't obscured, but it did uh, rub a lot of people the wrong way. Um, interestingly, I think Amnesty's rationale was um, that this was a good way of portraying what was going on without actually revealing the identity of protesters. Um, but turns out not every viewer feels the same way. So I just thought it was fascinating. I think we're going to see many more instances of this in which they're good intentions, but maybe not everybody feels that it ends up being accurate or, uh, you know, uh, or is sort of true to life. And um, I think it's just going to get a lot more complicated. So I just found that really interesting. Natalia, what are you following? So a little bit more mainstream maybe, but almost I feel like every New Yorker I've been talking to, I've been binging Succession. Um, it's the very last season of the show. Um the character development for me has been unparalleled. I'm not a huge TV goer. I don't have a lot of time to watch anything. So the fact that I'm binging this is a little crazy to me and myself. And I think what's fascinating is not even the show itself, but all of the podcasts and the review and the literature that has been published on the subject of the show and the subtext of these characters. And kind of the dynamic of like, what does it mean to run a big successful family business and, you know, sort of being an international tycoon of sorts. And it just goes to show, I mean, I think a lot of people that, you know, we go through in life and we meet, you know, I think everyone wants to be successful and it just kind of makes you take a step back and think about, you know, what does success mean to me and at what cost? Um, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to the last few episodes. Samira, how about you? What have you been following? Um, this is super niche, and it was just the first thing that came to mind. And so I, I follow a, a science publication called Nautilus, and it's kind of like pop science. It's a very consumable, beautiful publication. And a few years ago, they did a piece on the mating habits of eels, and basically that scientists have no consensus on how eels reproduce, and they've never been able to like they've never been able to actually see them in the like they they have no idea and. The leading theory for a long time was that, that like for like it was like a year before they know they're gonna die, they stop eating, develop sexual organs for the first time in their life. They like develop them spontaneously, and they all were thought to swim to a patch of water, I think in the Atlantic, the Sargasso Sea, and they that's where they reproduce and they swim back to wherever they are. And I just think it's incredible. First of all, into like today to have a, like a scientific mystery of that magnitude that there's like a whole animal that. We just like can't figure out what, I don't know, I just think it's kind of incredible. And recently there have been like some 
developments and they have confirmed and they they have like found that they do all travel to a certain place and they have more information. And so for some reason, I was like very excited to see that there's like more clarity on this very specific kind of weird thing. Um, so I've been following that that science cycle recently. Wow, nature, crazy. And with that, thank you for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Z Weinberg, follow Natalia at Natalia Talker, and Samira at Samira Solari. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. And now join us for two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.